Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome into another great episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, I am Adam Lowther. Today we have with us Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and a very special guest, Kiwi Williams, uh, Derek. Uh, and he is, of course, my co-author on a recent article that is entitled, Why America Has a Launch on Attack Option. Can we, can we also, and it was can we also art- point out that he's a NIDS fellow? He is a NIDS fellow. That's true. That's true. He's a... Uh, a great NIDS fellow and one of, I would say, one of the Air Force's best thinkers. Uh, he's he's that too, and that which is of course why we wrote the article. Um, I think Derek was uh, one of the inspir. He was clearly the inspiration for the article because as we were talking about the, we were responding to an article that was written in March. Uh, it was called "Launch Under Attack: A Sword of Damocles" by. Natalie Montoya and or Scott Kemp, who were uh, from MIT, and essentially in their article in March that was also in War on the Rocks, they argued that, and so Montoya, for her senior thesis, did a simulation in which she looked at a Russian strike on the American ICBM fields, and essentially she said that they're going to have to expend uh, the majority of their ICBMs to take out potentially, you know, two to 300 U.S. ICBMs, which would still leave us with 100 to 200. And therefore, we then have the advantage. And their their broader argument was that we don't need, we the United States don't need a launch under attack they call it a policy, then they call it a doctrine. We, of course, say, no, it's not a policy and it's not a doctrine. It's an option. It's an option. And so we responded to this article and we made sort of three broad uh, points in that we said, hey, you're wrong because you don't understand how ICBMs and ICBM warfare would potentially take place. And and so you don't understand those tactics we then said, you know, sort of the second broad area was they because they also talk about, hey, when you have a launch under attack option, you you could have an accidental nuclear war. You, you're going to launch mistakenly thinking ICBMs are inbound when they're really not. And we said, well, you you overestimate this potential, you know, accident. We say, hey, listen, there's there's always risk. But because of the way we the the air force have have uh you know mitigated risk that the you're overestimating that potential and then our third argument is that there are some real technical imperatives as it relates to the ability to have command and control after an attack on the ICBM fields and we you know essentially say hey look they're probably going to attack our command and control networks they're going to attack our integrated tactical warning and attack assessment, both space and terrestrial. And if, you know, our bombers are not on alert, so they can use conventional or nuclear weapons to 
destroy the bomber fleet, the weapon storage areas. And then submarines, you've only got, you know, a small portion of the submarine fleet is at sea at any given time. So you can take out the majority of the submarine fleet in port, and then you can use a conventional torpedo if you find any submarines at sea. And so that's that's the basic point. But I wanted to turn it over to first you, Kiwi, and then Curtis and Jim for comment. And in that sense, Kiwi, what did you see as sort of the big problems with Montoya and Kemp's article? Okay. Thanks, Adam. I thought that the biggest problem was that they looked at this from a very mechanical standpoint, and they really missed the the overall psychological and deterrent piece. Deterrence happens in the mind of the adversary. They make that decision. And really what we're trying to do is not fight a nuclear war. We're trying to deter a nuclear war or even great power war at all from ever occurring. And the best way to be able to do that is by creating uncertainty in the mind of the adversary of whether or not their chosen course of action is going to be successful. And what launch under attack does is it provides a great amount of uncertainty in President Putin's mind that he might end up wasting upwards of 900 to 1,000 warheads to get nothing out of it. So instead of getting our 400 ICBMs, he might get zero ICBMs. But that doesn't mean that this is some sort of requirement or mechanical issue that happens automatically. Uh, Instead, this is a decision that's left up to the president. So the president decides whether or not he does or does not want to execute this option. Furthermore, this option, back in the Obama administration, there was an unclassified report on the presidential nuclear uh, employment guidance that made it clear that U.S. military planners were supposed to plan to have an effective response after absorbing a first strike. So therefore, what President Obama was really trying to do was to increase his decision time and be able to reduce the consequences of not executing the option so he could leave it open based on scenario, context, and every other piece of information that he had available to him at the time uh, when he would have to make this decision. Uh, But I would like to make the point that one thing that I do agree with out of their article is that ICBMs are constantly being flogged about their lack of survivability. And I think what people end up doing is they, they mistake the fixed nature of a target with an ease of being able to take it out. And when you're trying to plan out stuff and you have to look at your yield, your circular error probable, your weapon system reliability numbers, you start to have a lot of uncertainty start stack up. And being able to stack up the idea that the missile might not even be there when it arrives, when the adversary warhead arrives, I think provides that much more uncertainty in the mind of President Putin every single day that he just can't execute this option and believe that he will actually achieve his goals. And that's one of the three things we talk about when we're trying to influence adversary decision-making process is impose cost, encourage restraint, and be able to reduce the benefits of any action. And right now, this is a reduce the benefits of any action type strategy. Yeah, and and the idea that if you were to take the ICBM force off alert, you essentially increase their confidence that they can effectively strike 
that ICBM force. But one of the things that sort of bothered me most was that they didn't, it was, it was sort of a, uh, a, you know, there was no discussion of what happens with bombers. Would uh, There's an assumption that all the bombers will be there, all the command and controls there, all the it was there. The submarines are going to be able to launch all of theirs without issue. And as we've talked about and as, you know, we've thought about how would an actual nuclear strike on the United States take place their scenario is completely, uh, I would say, you know, it's unrealistic for, yeah, it's unrealistic for how an actual conflict would, would likely lay out. Well, And I, I know you wanted to add to that. Yeah, so you have to be able to look at what is our current day-to-day policy and then, or day-to-day posture, excuse me, and then where we move to different postures throughout conflict. Uh, so day-to-day, the U.S. actually holds a dyad. We have uh, we have the ballistic missile submarines that are out at sea at a alert rate that we talked about before that isn't isn't 100%. It's below 100%. So a uh, certain percentage of those boats are out in the sea at any one time, and a certain amount of those boats are actually postured to be able to uh, service targets. Additionally. Bombers are not sitting day-to-day alert at all. They are mainly on a conventional mission, and then they would be retasked and generated in a certain amount of time uh, if that were called to by Commander U.S. STRATCOM or the President or SECDEF. Uh, ICBMs have a very high alert rate, and they are dispersed hardened target set. So they provide something against the adversary that drives up cost for the adversary to execute any of their options. Uh, Additionally, as we're working through all these scenarios, you just have to realize that what happens in treaties and what happens on paper isn't necessarily what happens day to day as the posture works. And then you have to take into consideration the fog and friction of warfare, as well as what are we going to be trying to do as far as signaling goes and what looks like a conventional conflict, or is this a bolt out of the blue? Yeah, and that's a great point, and that's one of the things, and Jim and Curtis, y'all jump in, but one of the things that I'm often told is, well, Adam, don't you realize that there's going to be plenty of warning? There's no such thing as, you know, sort of a bolt out of the blue or surprise when it comes to nuclear conflict. That we'll, we'll, you know, we'll sort of, apparently people think we're going to grab our escalation ladder, start at the bottom of, of it, and then work our way up, and so that we, we you know, we know because we've worked up our rungs that, that, you know, the next thing that's going to happen is a nuclear strike. And, and I can't help but think back like, Hmm, history doesn't tell me that our adversaries give us lots of warning. History tells me that, that they like, you know, to engage in surprise attacks and, and that that's way more common than having plenty of warning. Jim Curtis, well, did you yeah, want to? Yeah, let me let me add it. First of all, Kiwi, that was a, just a fantastic uh, presentation of of the deterrence essence, and uh, uh, and I thank you for that. Um, I, I I what what interests me about this piece and and this study that was that was done here is that it it only looks at known, well, what we did know 
of the of the Russian numbers, right? So since the New Star Treaty has been suspended and since verification hasn't occurred in over three years, we really don't know how many are really facing us. And also, uh, none of this takes into account the likelihood um, and, and, and nuclear weapons exist for the worst case scenario, uh, the likelihood that uh, China and Russia would do this in unison. Uh, it was just a, a report out today uh, from the Middlebury Institute, uh, the Center for Nonproliferation Studies. So uh, they're not likely on our side of this argument. Um, uh, basically just noting that uh, there's basically 396 uh, ICBM missile silos either under construction or existing in China by, you know, within the next few years. Uh, and, uh, that's a significant amount of, um, a missile capability. And if they are using, you know, something that is merving with, with 10 ish warheads, that's a significant challenge. And if, if Russia and China decided to do a coordinated attack, uh, I, I don't think there's 102 or 200, uh, missiles surviving in this case, uh, without a launch under uh, a launch under attack option, um, so I, I was just I was curious about that. Um, you know, do you think Kiwi that the numbers change as we factor in the possibility of um, of um, uh, you know of this enduring friendship uh, that that uh, without friendship without limits. yeah this no limit relationship that they have uh, that a Chinese or and or and Russian coordinated attack bolt out of the blue uh, etc uh, that that would how that would necessarily affect the calculations so what I think that really does is it it does change the calculation on if you were successful and if we did not have a launch under attack option, what your likely probability of getting all of our ICBMs would be. And it would reduce the fraction of warheads that you would have to use to be able to achieve such a thing. So let's say we, we fast forward to 2035 and all the estimates are correct. And we're looking at uh, not just 1,550 strategic accountable warheads from Russia, which means that they actually have more uh, because of new start counting rules with bombers, uh, as well as exotic systems that they have fielded that right. don't fall under new start accounting rules. Uh, things like hypersonic glide vehicles aren't ballistic missiles anymore because they don't follow a ballistic trajectory. Uh, so you have to take that into consideration and the 1,500 that we're expecting China to have. So now if you have 3,000 and you have to put 1,000 down to be able to achieve a supposed disarming first strike of at least the ICBM, the ground leg, uh, all of a sudden now you still have 2,000 warheads remaining. If we're still at 1,500, you're like, hey, that's looking pretty good. But that's where that uncertainty comes back in because you could use that 1,000 and actually still get nothing under a launch under attack option if the president decides to execute that option. Uh, I think one of the other important considerations to think about in this whole uh, situation is what is going on right before those strikes and what other actions can we take? So 
as we get closer, we could execute what was known as the hedge, and that was taken out as a former role in the last NPR for uh, the Biden administration in 2022. Uh, but we still have weapons that can fill that type of role. Uh, one of the things that we've articulated a number of times is that we believe that a uh, single ICBM warhead on each launcher is a stabilizing force. Uh, but uploading those weapons provides a different disincentive to the adversary. So while we talk about exchange ratios, like, hey, I've got to use two or three warheads to get one warhead, one of the things that upload does is it makes missing a much bigger penalty. So with exchange ratios, we always think that if I have one warhead loaded per ICBM, that this is stabilizing because the exchange ratio with the Russians would be they would need two or three warheads to just get one warhead. And that is stabilizing. But another aspect is penalizing when we talk about if we were to upload up to three warheads on Minuteman 3 is now every missile that you miss has three warheads. And this is something that we think about when we look at Russian forces. So the SS-18 has 10 warheads in open source. Is If we miss three of them, all of a sudden I miss 30 warheads, not three warheads. So you pay a big penalty for any miss. And this goes back to our discussion earlier about uncertainty and deterrence and not knowing exactly what are going to be the benefits of my actions. And if all of a sudden I'm faced with 30 warheads, well, maybe I don't think that that's actually a benefit for me trying to conduct this first strike in the first place. Yeah, and one one thing, you know, you ask about the addition of the, the Chinese, and at some point here soon, you know, I think it was today or yesterday, I forget, where the North Koreans launched an an IC that had a burn time. I think it was like 74 minutes. And so that, that rocket, I mean, you, you can get anywhere in the world with that kind of a burn time. So, uh, that, that, you know, they're, they're going to be, you know, maybe it's, uh, the, the triple entente, you know, the, cause they're, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un has said that he's gonna, you know, build a, a peer nuclear arsenal, but this is something you and I didn't talk about. Kiwi and and it's something Curtis sort of spurred. How do our allies who fall under the nuclear umbrella? So if if our, if we've got China and we've got Russia with two or three times the arsenal we have, how are our allies going to think? Well, they can protect all you know thirty two countries under the American nuclear umbrella. I mean, is, is that going to be sort of a, a high confidence thing or, or, you know, are the South Koreans going to have to go, well, you know, they got 32 countries They're you know, their arsenal is way smaller than the bad guys. Maybe we really need to think about, you know, so we'll support the Americans by building our own arsenal. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to consider is that the reason why nonproliferation has been so successful uh, while I'll give all due necessary to the Nonproliferation Treaty, I think more uh, thanks needs to be given to U.S. extended deterrence policies uh, sure. for stopping our allies from proliferating. And I think that quite often we misunderstand that extended deterrence is what 
provides that assurance to our allies. And it's not. That extended deterrence is supposed to deter the adversary from taking that action. But that does not necessarily mean that you have assured that ally. Those requirements are different. Uh, Wasn't it Dennis Healy that said that 95% of our credibility is taken to just convince our allies that we will do what we do, and then the last 5% goes over to the Soviet Union? And I think that that analogy is apt uh, because it is a much more difficult problem because you're trying to signal to them and convince them that you will be there on that worst day and that you're going to put your security at risk to provide for their security. And I think that that's, that is a hard problem. And I think that it requires us to look at not only numbers, but posture and messaging to make sure that they understand that our security is intertwined with their security. And then if it is not, I know Curtis has made this argument a couple of different times, that then we may need to part our separate ways, and then um, then they would proliferate. My problem with what uh, Curtis has articulated before is that who is our friend today may not be our friend tomorrow. And while the American public, to include all of ourselves, have short attention spans of four to eight years, uh, I'd like us to try to be able to look out 100 to 200 years. I mean, We fought the Revolutionary War against the UK, and now the UK is our greatest ally. I don't know what's going to happen 100 years from now, but I know that nuclear weapons are probably still going to be around and that that may be a decision that we live to regret. Yeah. Jim, uh, you haven't said much. As you read these as our our nuclear engineer, and you read this article and then our reply, were there any sort of technical elements that stood out specifically as you thought about this? Well, Adam, thank you. And again, Kiwi, I, I first of all, I'm going to, I'm going to take the, the point of our listeners. If they're not just sitting back here thinking, wow, this is some great conversation. Uh, review it again. I've been sitting back listening and, uh, uh, and, <laughs> and coming up with all kinds of thoughts uh, that uh, are being spurred on by this conversation, especially uh, the very good uh, discussion by Kiwi. Um, but I, I would like to say uh, one of the things I think that gets lost, and you sort of touch on this, but I'm going to put it in a slightly different phrasing. Oftentimes people will say one nuclear weapon makes it through and it's all over and it has, you know, it, it's, it's able to happen. And yet when you look at our capability of, of a responding but B, all the things that have to happen. So I'm going to flip it around for a nuclear weapon to get through. And you talk about probability of damage, the PD, which you mentioned earlier, the probability of damage is based on a probability of a successful launch, a successful potential separation, depending on the technology, a successful reentry, a successful arming, a successful weapon that's still valid when it gets to us, a successful radar and a successful location. Any one of those is go, those probability of that happening goes to zero or something close to zero. The whole operation goes to near zero because they're multiplied together in the mathematics of this. So there's some the the technology here. And the point is that yeah, they have to be they have to get it right one time, get it all the way through. But everything, every single one of those steps has to be right. And we have operations that can inhibit that by changing the environment around 
the, the missile or whatever, by changing the environment around that nuclear weapon, by changing an electromagnetic uh, uh, environment around that radar. So there are many things that can happen that makes Putin's calculation suddenly go to, well, I just might not get through. And I appreciate, Kiwi, your comment on that in that that is what provides the deterrence. It's always the unknown, not the knowns. And then going back to Curtis, and I'll let you comment on this, because Curtis then said, well, what about this? You call it a blue lightning strike. Okay, yeah, things happen out of nowhere, and that's the way the enemy wants you to have to respond. However, we do have forces and techniques for knowing something's going on, enough to become alerted. Now, I would say I like being on alert all the time. I like being ready to go all the time. And I do like the fact that our human in a loop, the president, whoever's making this decision, has the option of shortening that time frame. And that's what's the value of this concept of launch on attack gives us. So I'd be interested in your comment. And I see Curtis is shaking his head too. So I'll let you guys comment on that. <laughs> I hit it on the technical side. So I, I think the first part on the the technical side is this is why you saw uh, what a lot of people during the Cold War called overkill. Because uh, as we were looking at damage expectancy and you're trying to look at probability of damage multiplied by probability of arrival, all of a sudden you start to realize that there's all these different links in the chain and you just need one link to break and then you don't get there. So if you're trying to get to a high certainty and you're multiplying all these little numbers together, you start realizing, well, I have to have more warheads if I'm going to get towards certainty. Um, And this goes back to uh, one of Adam's favorite topics, which is talking about prospect theory. And you get into that, well, I, I become, if I have a chance to win, I become risk adverse. Now, what we never want to do is we never want to back anybody into a corner Because if they're presented a loss, then they become risk tolerant. And that's where people become dangerous. And that's where we have to be careful with some of our rhetoric on, you know, making statements of, you know, different national leaders will never survive if if we conduct or if they conduct a nuclear strike. Because all of a sudden that means it's really, really hard for us to try to reestablish deterrence in the intra-conflict kind of aspect uh, if somebody sends a weapon flying. Because uh, all of a sudden they might believe, hey, I did it once and now they're coming for me. And if that's true, then you find yourself in those use it or lose it situations, which I think are are situations that we can all agree we'd like to avoid. Yeah, it, to sort of go to your point about this issue of, you know, this perceived overkill and this widespread perception that one nuclear weapon used, you know, actually always lands on its target and does exactly what it's supposed to. And, it, you know, I read a study where they were looking at the Vietnam conflict and they found that it took about 50,000 and it was actually over 50,000 rounds of small arms ammunition per kill by the by the United States. So we were using up ammunition like nobody's business for each kill we had. And so this idea that, you know, all I need is one bullet for, you know, to kill one person. It's just one bullet, one person. That, that's not historically the norm. We, we tend to miss a lot 
we tend not, you know, things don't hit their targets. And so therefore this idea that we're, you know, we just need a hundred, you know, ICBMs or 364 as one, one article said a, a while back, because that's, you know, 364 weapons equals 364 targets. It's just not realistic. Not only that, Adam, and, and we've discussed this before, but there's, there's a common misunderstanding of nuclear weapons effects that is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, because people believe that if one nuclear weapon is used, that it's all over. It's almost like a giant black hole opens up and swallows the earth, and it's, it's, it's doomsday. Uh, that is great for the fear cycle of deterrence. Everybody is f- so fearful of these weapons because they believe that to be true. One of my greatest concerns is that if someone were to use a lower yield weapon in a demonstration strike, reality and let's say pop culture perception will all of a sudden collide and create a, well, that wasn't so bad. And it might seem like, hey, if we're exchanging weapons at the, you know, tens of tons or hundreds of tons, and then we get up to maybe a kiloton, people are like, well, these, these effects aren't that bad and it's isolated. But all of a sudden, if you put, let's say, 300, 800 kilotons over top of a city, then it might not be a black hole that opens up and swallows the earth, but it will be pretty much what you were fearful of. And some of the things that we have burned into our mind of like, uh, not only pop culture movies, but also when we see things like above ground testing that was happening out in the Pacific, and we see these multi-megaton weapons being exploded and the, just the utter shock and awe of it, I get worried that, that the psychological scar tissue that we've built up there might actually fail us if these weapons are ever used. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I want to just hit on the other double-edged sword here, to, and that is this, this idea of, of uh, weapon system confidence, right? So this argument works both ways. Uh, I, to your point, Adam, I think to say that, you know, we, you know, if we only had a hundred or we only had 330 or whatever, that every weapon would work and every weapon would hit a target and you would achieve deterrence. We know that we have to account for that possibility of failure um, or, or have those numbers in order to ensure guaranteed retaliation. But that number, that also works the other way. We cannot assume that every Russian or Chinese missile isn't going to work. Um, and we cannot assume that, you know, because, you know, one thing that the Russians and the Soviets know how to build are ballistic missiles. They may not build cruise missiles very well, <laughs> you know, and their tanks may be of some question, but their ballistic missiles tend to work. I mean, if, you know, Iran has one of the most budding ballistic missiles, uh, programs in the world right now. Um, China and, and North Korea are prolific testers. They're learning every test. They're getting better with every test. I would argue um, that, uh, you know, our adversaries test ballistic missiles and improve their technology a lot faster than we do. And so we ought not to discount that as we count, as we do these calculations and we think about deterrence and this perception um, of the, of, 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 of who's deterring who. And we need to understand that, uh, that it is that, Numbers matter because if we are going to receive an, an attack, and I, I use the term bolt out of the blue, that is the surprise attack, because what other real stressful scenario is there? 
I mean, is do we really think that a onesie twosie nuclear strike on on the United States is going to be forgiven? Oh, okay, we'll let you get away with that one. Uh, that they that they wouldn't think that we would retaliate in some manner. Uh, I, I so it, it makes sense that if you're gonna go nuke against the U.S., you're gonna go all the way, and that is the most stressful and the most worrisome. Some of those won't make it. I grant you that. And some of ours will survive, and that's a good thing. But in the over, we, we can't live and strategize on hope that those situations will work. So we've got to prepare for where do we want to be if we want to make sure that this actually never happens, right? And I think you've stressed it very well, Kiwi, in my mind anyway, that we that we want to create this question of success in the adversary's mind. Can I really get there? And as long as that answer is yet, not today, we win, right? Deterrence wins. And so what does that mean? Does that mean building better numbers, changing the way we deploy? I would argue that the two MIT authors, um, while I have a lot of issue with the, with the study and their, and their arguments, um, the one thing I, I took away from this is that um, – it is possible uh, that we need more weapons and we might need to deploy them differently um, and that we need to maybe relook at mobility and these sorts of things, putting bombers back on alert um, and, and these sorts of posture changes because the world isn't what it was in the 1990s. And uh, as much as we would like it to be something different, this is the world that we are living in. And it's only getting more nuclear, not less. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to do that. I think enhancing survivability and, uh, and these sorts of things are key. But if we are to balance and, and hold ourselves to the guaranteed second strike is the way to successful deterrence, then you have to ensure that more than 102 systems survive. As it's 102 isn't scary enough. That is risk that I think our adversaries, who are much more risk tolerant than we are, I think that's risk they could be willing to accept. And all of, the last thing I'll say here is our adversaries, both sides, either have a launch on warning policy or going to achieve one when China gets all of its ICs up and running. If... If that isn't alarming and destabilizing to the world or to America, then why is a launch on under attack or launch on warning policy for the United States so destabilizing? Why are we willing to accept that from an adversary or two, but self-deter in a reasonable pro-deterrence war version posture? So I throw that out there for you and the listeners. I welcome your comments, but that's my thoughts on that. Thanks. Jim, I think uh, you had, you know, I was looking at the clock and we're about out of time. So I wanted to make sure, Jim, you had, you were, you know, vigorously waving one of your weapons effects books. So I wanted to hear what you had to say. Actually, thank you. Yeah. Wrong finger there. (laughs) No, no, actually, I was, I, I, I wanted to key in on something that Kiwi said real quickly, and that was I, I pulled up not a weapons effects book. This is a book called Decisive Battles of the USA by General Fuller. 
And interesting, in each of those battles that is described in this book, and I would recommend people read it, it highlights what Kiwi said, that most battles that were won were won when someone's back was to the wall and they they came out fighting a different way. And we don't want to put our adversaries in that position. So that was just the reason I pulled that out. I was going to make mention of that. But let me just, in, in, in closing here, I want to flip this over because Curtis is exactly right. We have to make sure that, you know, when you look at all these probabilities of failure, that the probabilities of failure on our side are reduced to a minimum so that we are confident in our systems making it and our adversaries see that. And that brings about fear in, in launching an attack. And that's the reason for our modernization and our recapitalization that's going on right now. And the importance of that, because we will fall behind our adversaries in that game and and cause them to think they can get away with it. And that's one of the most important pieces that comes out of that calculation that Kiwi talked about. And so with that, I, I, I'd like to, you know, I can end this now, turn it back to you, Adam, to close this out. What an excellent, excellent, excellent uh, opportunity to have yeah. a great conversation with a group of people that really understand this yeah. well. Thanks so much, Kiwi. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's uh, unfortunately we, you know, we want, I know the listeners are, you know, listening with bated breath and, and are, you know, yelling, you know, hey, but what about this? Or, hey, you need to talk about. Send us an email. And, uh, but uh, yeah, you can always send us an email. We've, we've had some comments and feedback from, from you, the listeners, and we always read it and we respond. So, and of course, we want to thank you for listening to The Nuclear View and encourage you to continue listening. And of course, thanks to you, Kiwi, for coming. But we want to end the show as we always end the show by reminding you, the listeners, to always think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.